Well, friends, can I encourage you to um, perhaps even now scan that code for the question and answer uh, that's on the front of the sheet there. You don't even need to log in. We tried to find an app that, you know, sometimes these question and answer things, you've got to log in and give them your details and sign up for newsletters before you can even submit a question. Uh, not so with this one. Uh, and be assured that pretty much whenever someone has a question, uh, there are sure to be others um, who either have that question already or who didn't realise they had that question until someone else uh, perhaps asked it. How about I pray uh, and um, we'll listen to what God has to say to us today. Our dearest Father, our bodies, our bodily selves, our sexual selves are so much a part of how we view and understand ourselves. Father, we confess that sometimes we've not perhaps fully grappled with what it means to be your people, not just in a spiritual sense, but in our whole selves. Father, we do ask that as we listen to you speak to us this morning, your spirit would bring us uh, peace where and comfort where we need it, clarity of thought and understanding where it's perhaps eluded us in the past and a greater grasp of what it means to delight ultimately in you uh, as the one who can fulfil and complete us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, the end of that chapter, and it'd be wonderful if you had it open there before you as we work through it together. And at the climax of today's passage, right towards the end of it, you might have noticed an idea that is so utterly implausible, so completely at odds with the way in which we instinctively think about ourselves, that perhaps you might have wondered whether it was a typo when you first read it. I think what's most confronting about today's passage is not simply what it might have to say about sexuality in general, not even the way it speaks about same-gendered sex in particular, though I don't want to end, underestimate how unsettling uh, and confusing, worrying this topic might be for some of us. Yet this passage proposes something far more unsettling than its conservative take on sex and sexuality. At the climax of today's passage, Paul drops a statement that seems not only implausible, but virtually incoherent to our world's way of thinking about things. You might have noticed it there, towards the end of the passage, Paul writes, you are not your own. You are not your own. For a culture such as ours, I think it's difficult not to feel unsettled, maybe even perhaps a little bit threatened by a statement like that. To be told, you are not your own. How are we supposed to understand and grasp such a confronting statement as that. Uh, in her 2019 book, Braving the Wilderness, the social researcher and psychologist Brené Brown, uh, she is well known from some fantastic TED Talks on things like shame and openness and compassion, she found or she conducted some research that affirmed that people really do yearn to experience a sense of connection, intimacy and belonging with one another but not if it comes at the cost to their own authenticity, freedom or power, is how she stated it. Not if it comes at the cost to their own autonomy, 
as much as people craved belonging and intimacy, authenticity, freedom and autonomy trumped even that. Summing up the key thesis of her book, Brown writes, true belonging is a spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself. Two profoundly different visions of how to be, aren't they? To belong to yourself or to be told you are not your own. I'd imagine that for many of us living in Western cultures, the star of self-belonging shines the brightest for us out of those two options, if we had to choose one over the other. But which of these two stars lies at the centre of our universe will ultimately determine the orbit along which the rest of our lives will follow. Just as the competing gravity of stars pull and tug the planets that move between them, so these two competing ideas had been pulling the Corinthians in a wobbling, distorted orbit as they started out living the Christian life, particularly with respect to how they viewed and embodied their sexuality. Uh, Have a look with me at our opening verses. Chapter 6 is where we'll begin. Chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. We looked at these verses last week, particularly with respect to slandering, theft and swindling. Uh, And this this morning we're revisiting it uh, as we move on to Paul's discussion of sexuality. Paul writes in verse 9, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And... That is what some of you were. The Corinthians' lives had formally orbited around the conviction that their bodies were their own, to do with pretty much as they pleased. And to be perfectly clear, none of the sexual behaviour that Paul specifically mentions in these verses would have been the cause for a very great deal of embarrassment or shame in the Corinthians' former lives. In ancient Rome, as long as someone's sexual behaviour matched well with their own social status and standing, they were perfectly at liberty to use their own bodies in whatever manner they pleased. Uh, The term sexual immorality mentioned here refers to any sexual behaviour that's conducted outside the framework of marriage between a man and a woman. Exactly why it is that marriage seems to loom so large in the Christian account of sexuality is something that we're actually going to dig into and explore much, much greater detail over the coming three weeks. Chapter 7 looks in detail at why it is that marriage looms so large in the way in which Christians speak about sexuality. But in the ancient Roman world, husbands would typically have felt no shame at all in seeking bodily enjoyment with women other than the wives to whom they were married. It's what this passage refers to as adultery, sex that is performed by a married person outside the marriage. Prostitution held even less social stigma than probably what pornography would hold for us today. Prostitution was typically just another aspect 
of public social gatherings as ubiquitous as any of the casual sex that typically marks our own culture nowadays. It is worth noting, though, that wives typically didn't possess anywhere near the same kind of liberties as their husbands did. Uh, Wives were expected to engage in sex primarily for the sake of producing an honoured heir for their husband's household. And with that desire to protect the family's honour came a whole stack of social restrictions. Social restrictions, actually, Roman social conventions that Christianity is going to attack head-on. We'll see that in the coming weeks. Uh, But men, including married men, were also often at liberty to engage in sexual activity with other men, even if they were married. The same-gendered sex was only considered shameful, really, if a man of a lower social standing sexually dominated a man who was of a higher social status or standing. Uh, The phrase that's translated in our passages here as men who have sex with men actually consists in two terms that literally describe the dominating partner and the partner who is dominated in a sexual act. Now, apart from the more restrictive social expectations that wives typically had to conform to, for the Corinthians, your body was your own, to do largely with as you saw fit. As long as everyone acted in accord with their perceived social status and social standing... Most of the sex described in verses 9 to 10 would have been tolerated. Sexually speaking, this is who many of the Corinthians had once been. Uh, As an aside, in patriarchal Roman society, a husband would only ever have chosen a virgin to be their wife. Only the most virtuous woman was chosen as a Roman wife in order to protect the husband's honour and status, social standing, to promote his own inflated sense of social status. But what I find so striking about this particular passage is that that kind of vain narcissism is not at all reflected in God's choosing of us. Have a look with me at verse 11, once again, verse 11 of chapter 6. After having described those list of behaviour there from verses 9 to 10, Paul says in verse 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is what some of you were. And yet that didn't prevent God from choosing them, from initiating intimacy with them. God initiated intimacy with those who had nothing but a history of shame to offer him so that he might share his honour with them. Can you see how stunningly different God's way of initiating intimacy is compared to the way in which the Roman world worked? We're told here that God washed us. That is, he cleaned away any mark of stain that our former way of life might have left upon us. 
He sanctified us. That is, He set us apart exclusively for Himself. He promised exclusive intimacy with those who He set apart for Himself. And He justified us. That is, He declared us guiltless, free of any accusation that could resurface against us. And and I wonder how verse 11, before we go any further, I wonder how verse 11 affects both your view of yourself as well as your view of other believers, especially when it comes to this area of sexuality that today's passage is looking at. To be told that we have been washed, set apart, sanctified, justified, means that we have, in thinking about ourselves, no need to pretend before God of our status. We have no need to suffer under the burden of moral imposter syndrome, as if someone might expose us in a way down the track that would leave God scandalised at who we are. No threat of God Himself ever turning and shaming us. No, He has washed us, sanctified us, set us apart for intimacy with Him and justified us. And in our view of other believers... It's true that our sexual histories do stay with us to some degree, don't they? They, We don't forget them completely. They perhaps live on in, in memories and pain and hurt, perhaps. However, there are challenging questions for us to be asked if we find ourselves unwilling or unable to view others as God now views them. God sees them as those who are worthy of the closest intimacy between himself and them. What perhaps might have gone wrong in our own pattern of thinking if we set ourselves at a distance from those who God himself has drawn close to? And that's reflected really in the way in which the Scriptures urge us to treat one another. Passages like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, which urge us to treat one another with care and purity and honour because that is how God has treated us. No matter someone's past, we're not at liberty to treat them any differently from how the Lord God treats them himself. Yet what was true for the Corinthian believers is probably no doubt likely true for many of us as well. That despite having entered our life into a a new orbit around God as people belonging to Him, the conviction that my body is my own, that I belong to myself, is probably a conviction that still exerts some gravitational pull upon us, that draws us to that way of thinking in various areas of our life. And in verses 12 to 13, Paul rehearses a little constellation of attitudes about bodily sexuality that the Corinthian believers had yet not yet escaped the pull of. Uh, have a look with me at verse 12. Verse 12, and we'll read into verse 13. Uh, referring here to attitudes that the Corinthians themselves held. Uh, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You, you Corinthians, say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The Corinthians would certainly have agreed 
that not every expression of sexuality was equally good and beneficial. The Corinthians, like us, had their own sexual taboos. As I had already mentioned, the Corinthian culture insisted that to let someone of a lower social status sexually control or master you was irredeemably shameful and socially subversive, threatened the social order of things, is how they thought. But as long as you were master over your own body, there seemed to the Corinthians little reason to restrict yourself, sexually speaking. Indeed, the Corinthians saw very little difference between the body's relationship to food and the body's relationship to sex. They equated both hunger and sexual desire as comparable bodily appetites, as aspects of our bodily nature that we have a need and a right, indeed, to have satisfied for us. Now, this understanding of sexual need is one that I think increasingly marks our own culture's thinking about sex as well. A recent court case was lodged in the federal court arguing that an insurance fund should have provided a claimant ongoing access to professional sex workers, insisting that their health issues prevented them from finding a willing sex partner, and so that this health fund should fund their visits to sex workers. The claimant, the person who was claiming that the insurance fund should support them in this, uh, said these words, um, submitted these words. They said, without the assistance of a professional sex worker, I am not able to achieve sexual release and am effectively denied the right to sexual health, pleasure and well-being. Do you notice here how easily that view of sex as a desire that I have a right to have satisfied can so easily become something that leads us to have a claim upon others, as if their bodies should somehow be for us. A far more extreme expression of the same idea is the increasingly vocal incel movement. Uh, incel is a word that just stands for involuntary, voluntarily celibate. Uh, it's usually the male proponents of this abhorrent misogynistic movement that expresses outrage online, expresses outrage that women would dare to frustrate or deny them what they consider their right to the enjoyment of sexual satisfaction. Friends, to flippantly equate an appetite for food as being comparable to a desire for sex in the way in which the Corinthians had been doing and our own culture often does, is to view other people's bodies as that which we have a biological need to consume. It's essentially a predatory attitude towards the bodies of others. As in the ancient world, so now, to view sexual satisfaction as a fundamental biological need or human right opens the way for some truly damaging expressions of sexuality. And some of them have even been given credence in the church itself. Some have even, the church has been complicit in, in introducing into its attitudes and its thinking about marriage. And we'll have a reflection on some of the ways in which that has happened next week as we come to look at marriage itself in detail. 
in treating sex as little more than an instinctive response to a purely biological appetite, the Corinthians wrongly assumed that what they did with their bodies had no real enduring eternal significance. Just as what you eat probably doesn't have a whole lot of significance beyond how you find tomorrow. So with sex and the body in the minds of the Corinthians. If God has stamped, if God himself has stamped a used-by date upon our bodies, why pass up any reasonable opportunity to enjoy them to their full? It's an objection that Paul goes on to answer in the remainder of today's chapter. Uh, Let's look at the next little section, the second half of verse 13 to 14. After the reference, the Corinthian reference to comparing uh, the sexual desire with, with the desire for food... Paul writes this, halfway through verse 13. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. See, far from being a temporary or transitory aspect of who we are, as God's people, God has invested our bodies with eternal significance. Just as God raised Jesus' own human body from the grave, so he will do so for us as well. The body is not a disposable, ephemeral cocoon for our soul that we'll one day just shed and leave behind us. It is in resurrected bodies that we will inhabit the rest of eternity. It is in resurrected bodies that we will continue to serve and to worship and praise the Lord Jesus in eternity into the future. Speaking about these precious mortal bodies of ours, Paul actually offers this exhortation to us in the book of Romans. It's Romans chapter 12. I'll pop up on the screen. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Just as God cares about the kind of worship and praise that we offer with our mouths, that we think about with our minds, so he cares deeply about the way in which we honour him with the uses of our bodies as well. Our worship, our service of God is as much an embodied reality as it is a spiritual one. We can't praise God in our spirits while at the same time using our bodies as if they belong just to us, as if God's got no claim upon them at all. In the following section of our passage, Paul unpacks for us why it is that sexual immorality can't be a matter of indifference for God's precious people. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 15. We'll pick it up from there. Paul asks them, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 
in verse 16, Paul is riffing off a tune that Adam himself had joyfully composed in the Garden of Eden. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, Adam recognises in Eve a beauty that was neither to be consumed, as the beautiful fruit of the garden was to be consumed, nor was it a beauty that was to be ruled over as the creatures of the field were to be ruled over. Instead, here in Eve was one with whom Adam was to intimately become united as one flesh with her. Now, in chapter 7, Paul's going to go on to paint a positive vision for how we can freely use our bodies sexually in a way that really does honour God and one another. But marriage isn't the focus of today's passage. Rather, Paul is suggesting that the one flesh sexual intimacy of marriage teaches us something about the intimacy that all believers enjoy with Christ himself. I wonder if you could think of it this way, perhaps. Were a wife to discover with horror that her husband had betrayed their exclusive bodily intimacy by engaging in sex with another man or woman, it would hardly surprise us if that wife were to be flooded with a sense of undeserved shame. The burning grief of having been so betrayed, so dishonoured, of being forcefully drawn into the orbit of her own husband's unfaithfulness. Without her consent, he, who was supposed to be one flesh with her, has forcefully inserted an outside party into what should have been an exclusive circle of intimacy between the two of them alone. A husband simply can't live as if his body is his own without grievously wronging his wife, with whom he is one flesh. Don't you know, Paul asks the Corinthians, in the same way, you too are one flesh with Christ. Even more than that, Christ's own spirit dwells within us. Friends, when we engage in any form of sexual immorality, any pattern of sexual behaviour outside marriage that Jesus himself has not affirmed, we're effectively taking a member of Christ's own body and without his consent, without Christ's consent, we're forcefully implicating Christ in the shame of involuntary intimacy with a third party. Paul asks there in verse 15, should I take, that word there, take, is a forceful, violent word, not just a casual word, should I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Never, Paul says. To live and act as if our body is our own is to compromise our intimacy with Christ himself, who is one flesh with us. And Paul illustrates this point powerfully in the closing verses of today's passage. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 18 and what follows. Verse 18. There Paul urges the Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore 
honour God with your bodies. Uh, And then in chapter 7, Paul will go on to describe exactly what honouring God with our bodies should look like. Uh, What is unique about sexual immorality to Paul's mind is not that it's more culpable or more abstractly blameworthy than other sins, but rather that it involves deploying our own bodies against themselves, using the body that God has honoured us with to shame and dishonour that very same body. It's a self-attack, so to speak. Paul reminds us that we are purchased with a price. Christ died our death for us to wash us clean from all shame, to sanctify, set us apart that we might enjoy intimacy exclusively with Christ and to justify us, to declare us free from all guilt. Friends, we're no longer simply our own. In whatever we do with these precious bodies, we implicate also God's Spirit who is dwelling within us. Flee from sexual immorality. Paul concludes this passage. Yes, we must. We must flee. But friends, as we finish, we must also remember to whom it is that we have already fled. Christ, who without hesitation delights to make us worthy. Christ, who with no hesitation at all delights to become one flesh with us. We don't flee sexual immorality because we fear that we might become untouchable to God if we were to fail or slip. We flee sexual immorality because we have already become one with one who loves us and delights in being one flesh and intimately united with us. Let's pray that we would be so captivated over the coming weeks of what it means to be united with Christ, that that lure, that pull to thinking of our bodies as our own begins to fade quickly from the way in which we think about ourselves and one another. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that it was you who initiated relationship with us, that it was you who sought out intimacy with us, that it was you who, knowing all that we are, would think to bind yourself to us even more intimately than the one flesh of husband and wife, but, but even to the point of having your spirit dwell permanently within us. Father, help us to grasp that we are no longer our own, that, that we share in you just as you share in us. And Father, we ask that you would begin to so captivate our thinking of what it means to have you intimately dwell within us that the thought of drawing you into other behaviour that, that you don't affirm, that you don't approve of, would begin to lose all of its lure and appeal to us. And Father, we ask that you would help us to never forget that your washing, your sanctifying and your justifying of us are things that you have all completed and in that we can rest even as we feel ourselves drawn back to the orbit 
of our former ways of living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, I think we're going to sing together again with masks and everyone standing. Um, I would encourage you, if you've got any questions, uh, either on the passage or on the general things that we've been looking at, to scan that and send them through now. Uh, And after time of prayer, Laura and I will see if we can answer some of those. Uh, Please do stand uh, and join with us uh, as we sing.